live and in color. Uh, welcome to the last Wednesday night of the year. Uh, probably the biggest crowd we've ever had on a Wednesday night, so just amazing. Those of you who start, decided to stay home, I'm not sure why, because, well, there's not many seats open, so that's, uh, that's good. Thank you all for being here, either uh, here or online. Um, we're going to be diving into the rest of this kind of chunk of narrative uh, with these various 12 healings, depending on how you uh, are counting. For those of you who are counting, there's, you'll see tonight there's some confusion about how do we get to 12, but... Um, yeah, see what happens. Let's pray. Uh, love, uh, Heavenly Father, we just come to you tonight. We just thank you for a place that is uh, warm and dry. We do thank you for uh, the precipitation and the moisture that uh, provides the land with what it needs. And we thank you that we could get the snow removed from our parking lot. And so we just pray that you would be with our time tonight as we continue to to focus on this gospel that Matthew has written for us and also uh, on the Advent season and the birth celebration of you, Jesus. So be with us tonight and be with our discussions. Be with those folks who are at home and keep them safe as well. Um, in Jesus' name, amen. Alrighty. So uh, what I want to do is actually I want to start um, back in... Uh, nine, nine, nine. And I know for some people, they just kept sticking to the schedule. And so you'll, you'll be confused why we stop at 34. There is a very uh, clear break at 34, after 34, uh, as we move into 35. And I know we've been talking, it seems to be at nauseum about how we read, uh, how we read our Bibles and the, the dividing up, the dissecting of the text and what that does to our understanding of the text. Um, and Amanda and Betsy and I had a really in-depth conversation about you know, even how the chapter breaks and the heading breaks that have been given to us in these translations so often influence how we understand various sections. Mostly it's good, and at times it's a problem. Uh, and so what I want to do is I want to back us up into 9-9, which we did, went through last week, because it is such a key part of understanding where we're at uh, as we move into this question about fasting um, in 14. So uh, Matthew 9-9. Uh, as Jesus passed on from there, uh, he's... Okay. How about I read the words that are on the page? Uh, he saw a man called Matthew sitting at the tax booth, and he said to him, Follow me. And he rose and followed him. And as Jesus reclined at table in the house, behold, many tax collectors and sinners came and were reclining with Jesus and his disciples. And when the Pharisees saw this, they said to his disciples, Why does your teacher eat with tax collectors and sinners? But when he heard it, he said, Jesus is saying, uh, Those who are well, have no need of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. Then the disciples of John came to him. Now it seems 
it could have been in the same location. Uh, we don't get a big break here. Then the disciples of John came to him, saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the wedding guests mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? The days will come when the bridegroom is taken away from them, and then they will fast. No one puts a piece of unshrunk cloth on an old garment, for the patch tears away from the garment, and a worse tear is made. Neither is new wine put into old wineskins. If it is, the skins burst, and the wine is spilled, and the skins are destroyed. But the new wine is put into fresh wineskins, and so both are preserved. While he was saying these things to them, behold, a ruler came in and knelt before him, saying, My daughter has just died, but come and lay your hand on her, and she will live. And Jesus rose and followed him with his disciples, and behold, a woman who had suffered from a discharge of blood for twelve years came up behind him and touched the fringe of his garment. For she said to herself, If I only touch his garment, I will be made well. Jesus turned, and seeing her, he said, Take heart, daughter, your faith has made you well. And instantly the woman was made well. And when Jesus came to the ruler's house and saw the flute player, <clears throat> excuse me, the flute players and the crowd making a commotion, he said, Go away, for the girl is not dead but sleeping. And they laughed at him. But when the crowd had been put outside, he went in and took her, hand, took her by the hand, and the girl arose. And the report of this went throughout all that district. And as Jesus passed on from there, two blind men followed him, crying aloud, Have mercy on us, son of David. When he entered the house, the blind men came to him, and Jesus said to them, Do you believe that I am able to do this? They said to him, Yes, Lord. Then he touched their eyes, saying, According to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. And Jesus sternly warned them, See that no one knows about it. But they went away and spread his fame through all that district. As they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke. And the crowds marveled, saying, Never has, was anything like this seen in Israel. But the Pharisees said, He casts out demons by the prince of demons. And then we'll next week... Uh, in January, we'll get into the, the next big section. So we've been going through, this is the third week when we'll be walking through these uh, stories of these miracles and the piling up of these miracles. And one thing that, that I want us to be thinking about and I want us to be reflecting on is, you know, we get these groups of miracles together and Matthew is clearly doing it for, a, for an effect and we see some similar themes throughout the miracles of what Jesus is doing. And we also see some variants of the, the different miracles, and those are significant as well. So one thing I think would be super interesting for us, you know, because next week we don't have Wednesday night, the next week we don't have Wednesday night, so we got two weeks, uh, to go back and to read through in one continuous stretch each, this, this section, going back from right after the Sermon on the Mount, 728, uh, through this section, uh, 934, and just look at what is happening throughout uh, these miracle stories and where we see, again, similarities and where we some, see some differences. Because interjected in here are these little pockets of 
Jesus doing some parabolistic, I mean that's a word. If it is, I just, if it's not, I just made it up. If it is, great word. Uh, Parable-like teachings. So notice he's teaching them. He goes in and he's eating with Matthew and the sinners and the tax collectors. We talked about that last week and how revolutionary that was for him to be in the presence of these people, breaking bread with them. Now, if we would have just left that there, we would miss out on how connected this next story is where he's approached by John's disciples and they are frustrated or maybe confused. And their question is about eating. So notice Matthew puts together these two events that are revolving around who one eats with and when and how one eats. So some would say, well, that's, that's how the story happened. Maybe, or maybe it's the case that Matthew wants to show us something very clear that Jesus is taking these dietary laws and he's breaking them up and he's showing us how it's not about who we eat with. In fact, it is about who we eat with and, and we should be eating with those who we shouldn't be eating with. And it's not about how we eat or when we eat that's important because for them it's this external uh, thing. Likewise, again, what we want to be aware of is how these groups of people function as single characters within the story. So John's disciples function as a character alongside, uh, as we see later, this group of Pharisees, as we saw last week as, again, these group, this group that is called the Pharisees. So they're concerned. So Basically, my translation of this, my paraphrase, would be John's people came and they're like, this isn't fair. <laughs> like, why do your guys get to eat whatever they want, whenever they want, when we are being obedient to this practice of fasting? Now, these people would have fasted more than likely twice a week, and then on signature holidays like the Day of Atonement and stuff. As I said this morning, these people did intermittent fasting before intermittent fasting was cool. Okay? So that's why they were like super fit and in good shape because they intermittent fasted throughout the week. What you missed at home is roarous laughter. I know it doesn't really transfer through my microphone because there's, you know, like 700 people here, as I mentioned. Uh, the room is full, it's packed, we had to bring in more chairs. Um, and Jesus makes the point that, that as he is here, there should be celebration that's taking place. There should not be this idea of, uh, as he mentions, mourning. Because for a wedding guest, okay, again, this thing, this thing that we miss today Weddings are shorter than ever, right? I love it when I meet with a couple and they're like, how long is this wedding going to take? Uh, I don't know. How long do you want it to take? As short as possible. <laughs> okay, how about 20 minutes? Okay, sounds good. But for a Jewish wedding, it would have been a whole week. I mean, we think weddings are expensive today. <laughs> a week of wedding celebration. There's like this massive 
week-long celebration because that's just what they did. And then Jesus starts to give us, because as we uh, move into the next section, we're going to start to get some parables. He gives us this obscure-like parable around um, the patch and the wineskin and, and what exactly is, is he saying here. Well, we don't really know. You know, we want to interpret and we want to say, you know, Jesus coming is the new wine and the Jews are the old wineskin. And so God is rejecting the Jews and, and this new movement is the new wineskin. You know, typically the people that interpret it that way are people that are like, and I'm the new wineskin. It's always a, you always want to be careful around those types of interpretations. You know, I, I'm not the old patch, or I'm not the old garment with a new patch. I'm the new wineskin. The point of it that, that Matthew is trying to get us to understand is it's not, again, about who we eat with or when we eat or how we eat. It's about Jesus and the joy that he brings about uh, in this, in his presence here on, on earth. So we get this brief little break, and then we jump into, again, more of these healings. Now, as we've talked about before, this event, this healing, the Mark and Luke tell us the guy's name is Jairus, happens in the other Gospels of uh, Mark's Gospel and Luke's Gospel. And in those Gospels, she doesn't die. She's not dead. So there, if you're like, this story sounds familiar, but I didn't think she was dead when Jesus first is introduced to the dad. You would be correct. What is Matthew t- trying to do? Well, part of it is Matthew, again, makes everything more succinct. He, he makes everything uh, more concentrated. The point is not, was she, was she sick and then she died? Was she not dead? Did they not know she was dead? You kind of know if somebody's dead or if they're not dead. There's not like, well, she was close to death. Um, the reality is she was either dead or mostly dead right on death's doorstep. So Jesus is going and he's approached by Jairus, this man, to come and to heal his daughter. To bring her about. Now, notice there is no urgency. It doesn't say Jesus gets up and sprints to Jairus' house. It doesn't say, and with great haste, Jesus went after him to to make sure that uh, they can make this happen. Which, on the way, he encounters this woman, which delays him even more. What we have to ask is, why is Jesus not in a hurry? Because we have, last week when we talked about the storm, Jesus is awoken out of a slumber, and he has this little interchange with his disciples before calming the storm. So he seems to see the reality of the world in a much different way. But how often is it the case that when something happens in our lives, it is an emergency right now? Like, there's, there's no calm, 
There's no like, okay, yeah, like we'll get to it. And yet sometimes it feels like God is dragging his feet around these instances where we're like, ah, like Jesus, we need you here right now. Fix this. And he's like, okay, I will. No, like right now. Yeah, I will. I'll make it. Don't worry. And notice what is pointed out in both of these instances is the faith of the individual and how the faith of that individual functions within the healing. Again, we've talked about this, right? Because Jairus comes on behalf of someone else, his daughter. Remember, the centurion comes on behalf of somebody else, young child or young slave in his house. So we see Jesus bringing about healing for these individuals that are brought to him. In essence, last week we had the paralytic, the four individuals or the two individuals, depending on how they were carrying him, bringing their friend to be healed by Jesus. Again, further driving home the point that Jesus is in the business of healing when directly requested or when requested by someone else. I know, you're thinking, but Eric, she's dead. She can't ask for healing on her own. Okay, fair point. I think the point, though, here is that Matthew is saying that the faith of these individuals is bringing about the restoration and the healing of other individuals. Speaking of patience, we see this woman who has this discharge of blood for 12 years. 12 years. Like, I've lived here for 12 years. I mean, when you think about it, it's like, 12 years ago, I don't want to embarrass anyone, but like, you were a lot younger. <laughs> Otherwise, they're going to never sit close to the front ever again. <laughs> right, where were you 12 years ago? Thank you. My point exactly. <laughs> Not to embarrass you, it's just the reality, like, for some of us, we're like, yeah, 12, 12 years this woman's been dealing with this thing. And we, again, we look at these people who have dealt with, we talked about the leper and, and the desperation which he finds himself. He doesn't care, he's going to do everything he can to get close to Jesus. Now, Matthew gives us another instance of this woman who goes to Jesus because she's been suffering for 12. I've never prayed for anything for 12 years. How Again, how often is it the case? We pray for something for maybe 12 days, maybe 12 months. We're like, oh, clearly I've gotten my answer. God hasn't answered my prayer, so he's given me an answer. And it's been, but this individual, it's been 12 years years. And that's not the most amazing part about this. 
Because she touches Jesus, and notice what happens. Verse 22. Jesus turns, and what does he do? What does Matthew tell us that Jesus does? Again, this is not a a hard test. The words are right there. What does he say? Before that, Jesus turns and he saw her. He sees her. So often we just skip over that. We're like, it's just about the miracle. Yes, it's about the miracle. It's also about the reality that the God of the universe, Jesus Christ, he's on his way to resurrect a dead person. (laughs) Have you ever been like, I can't deal with this. I have something very important to do. Was it to resurrect somebody from the dead? (laughs) I can't. One of the questions that was asked to me about our time in Detroit was, you know, in essence, how are you going to be different when you get back uh, to Niswa? And one of the things that I said is, I want to be able to see the people in our area the way we see these people in Detroit. But how often is it the case that we are on our way to do something and maybe it's at a glance we see somebody who is in need. But we don't want to turn and actually see them. Because when we see someone, it draws us into their humanity and unites us through this thing called eye contact. And it's more than eye contact. It's seeing the person for who they are. Yeah. We have the luxury of when we see somebody in need in the Brainerd Lakes area, we're typically in our cars. We're not in a metropolitan area where we're walking on the street and we see somebody in need and they're right there and they're looking at us and they're saying, I need help and all we have to do is avert our gaze. Oh, I can't stop. I'm, I'm super busy. Jesus is on his way to resurrect a child And he takes this moment and he turns and he sees this woman. He sees her in all her humanity and in all her pain. And he says, your faith has made you well. She didn't ask Jesus anything. Now, you could say, well, it was implied because he touched her. Jesus isn't on a solo mission. There's a group of them that are walking together. They're in the street, and and somebody bumps into him, and he immediately turns because he knows that she's in need of something. And she doesn't even have to ask. He immediately sees her, and he looks into her eyes, and he says, your faith 
has made you well. And again, Matthew, he wants it to be so clear. And instantly, the woman was made well. Now again, the challenge around this is we, this can often be twisted into say there is a, uh, a required amount of faith before healing can take place. But this isn't about the amount of faith that this individual has. The, the Greek language that is used around this is the quality of faith that this woman possesses. So it's not about a quantity of faith. It's about a quality of faith. It's a little bit like eggnog. Like when you get not really good eggnog, you got to drink a little bit more of it. First, you got to water it down with a little bit of milk because it's too thick. And then you're like, ugh. But if you get like really good eggnog, you don't need to drink a lot of it. Most of you are like, no, 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 no to the eggnog. I'll pray for you. 12 years. The quality of her faith results in her healing. But again, we must caution ourselves around saying not healing equals not faith. So not healing does not equal not faith, which Russ is doing the math. Not he, it's not an inequality. It's that she has the level of faith that she goes to Jesus expecting him to do something. And he does it. And they keep going. And as they approach, what's happening? There's a big commotion. That's the word that, that the ESV chooses to translate. Now, when somebody dies within a Jewish context, there is uh, paid professional mourners that come out and they make this big display of grief. You know, they sit shiva for a week because of the death and all these things. Sometimes I wish we could bring some of that back. Because I think, you know, again, in the, in the spectrum, we don't do enough of this. We're like, especially, especially us good Christians, which is all of you here who have come out in the middle of the storm to be here tonight. You're the best Christians. That's correct. And even if you turned in, uh, tuned in at home, you could be watching some great Christmas movie like Die Hard, but you're choosing to watch this, so you're like right there with us, okay? So what was I even talking about? Oh, yeah, the mourning thing. When somebody dies who's a follower of Jesus Christ, we're like, yeah, we're not even going to wear black. We're just, we're happy. Woo, yes. Why? 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 These people did it right. There was mourning and lamenting because they had lost somebody that they loved. That's okay. That's not only okay, it's good and it's healthy for them to participate in these things. 
Now, they did laugh at Jesus because they're like, no, no, she's actually dead. And Jesus says, I got this. And he goes in, he takes her by the hand, and he brings her back to life. I mean, how, how incredible is that? <laughs> now, again, we can speculate on like, was Jesus hung up with the lady because he was kind of sandbagging? Like, he wanted her to die. <laughs> I'm pretty sure Jesus didn't need to make his miracles even more miraculous by, you know, like, delaying what he's actually doing. But notice what is happening. In, in this instance, verse 26, the report goes throughout all of the district and then in the next healing, Jesus is like, no, no, don't tell anybody. Because Jesus leaves there, and instantly he comes across two blind individuals, two blind men. Now, who wants to sing the song that goes along with this? But the blind men stood by the road and they cried. Come on, anyone? Yeah, exactly. Holly, I know you know it. You're like... I don't want to sing, but I'm singing it in my head because you can't help but sing it. Yeah, what? Yeah. Oh, some of these great things that you're like, you can't forget. So when you come up, you're like, oh, yeah, that's from the Bible. Interesting. Now, notice what is it that they're crying? Verse 27. Have mercy on us, son of David. Do they ask to be healed? Meh. They don't say, Jesus, we are blind and heal us, son of David. What they are requesting is something so much bigger than healing. They are requesting the mercy of God to be given to them. Now, yes, there is an implication that the mercy is the reception of physical healing. Yes. And at the same time, it is so much more than that because who do they say that Jesus is? Well, who did the demons in the tomb say that Jesus was? The Son of God, which is a very significant title because if we remember all the way back to the beginning, in the genealogy, what were we discussing? The importance of sonship and genealogy and how that functions within a Jewish context. And then we talked about Satan and the testing of Jesus and his questioning of who is your dad? Are you truly the son of God? And now here we see this recognition by two blind individuals that Jesus is the son of David, which makes him within the line of David, which makes him kingly. And notice the individuals that have the greatest clarity of vision are blind people. Again, because we, we see this contrast of the Pharisees should see clearly the Gentiles should not see clearly, and yet Matthew keeps showing us these instances where it's this great role reversal, where the Gentiles don't, or the Gentiles see clearly. Now, there is some speculation in my own mind 
that they are calling him the king of David are these Jewish people who see him clearly as the Messiah, as the son of David. Well, Matthew doesn't give us that information. What we do know is that that the request that they have is so much more than just physical restoration of their sight. And notice also what Jesus does. They're on the street, and he brings them into the house, which is something we can often miss. It says, when he entered the house, these blind men come in with him. And Jesus says, do you believe that I'm able to do this? Again, the implication is to be healed, to grant them mercy. And they say, yes, Lord, capital L. And he touched them, and he says, according to your faith, be it done to you. And their eyes were opened. I want us to keep this phrasing to continue, this phrasing at the front of our minds as we continue to walk through the rest of Matthew. And the importance of Jesus opening the eyes of an individual to be able to see who he is. Now, the challenge, again, that, that I think we can often wrestle with is that we very much have bought into far more Greek philosophical perspectives on the human body than God-centric visions of the human body. Because when we look at the history of Greek philosophy and, and, and Greek thought throughout the ages into today, we often buy into this idea that the body is bad, the body is evil. If we could just be freed from these bodies, then, then our lives would be so much better. But in the meantime, from the time we're born to the time we die, there is Uh, this Cartesian dualism that exists within us where we're fighting between the good stuff, which is our spirit, and the evil stuff, which is our physical body. And once we are freed from our physical body, then everything is going to be better. Then why is Jesus constantly providing physical healing in the present. If it didn't matter that the woman would be healed from her bleeding, why does Jesus heal her from her bleeding? If it doesn't matter that these two individuals would receive back their sight, then why does Jesus choose to provide them with sight? Now, we can swing way too far. I I, I totally get that. Although, I think we could swing a little bit from where we are for the most part and be in a a more God-centric understanding of how our bodies are to function and, and it be within the world. Because 
as I, I don't know how many times I've been through this gospel of Matthew, I'm just constantly struck at the number of times Jesus seeks to bring about physical restoration of the physical body in the present. And yet how often do we see our bodies, our physical bodies, as the enemy? Well, typically it's when it's not functioning the way we want it to function. And why is it that we view our bodies in particular ways? Is it because it comes from Scripture? Or does it come from society's influence and the history of viewing our physical bodies as something that is to be fought against? Something to think about. So, we move on. As they were going away. Behold, a demon-oppressed man was mute, who was mute, was brought to them. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled. Oh, I'm sorry. Let's back up. I missed a very key, key part there. After they're healed, Jesus gives them stern warning. See that no one knows about it. You have to see the irony in this, right? Like, you can't hide the fact that you used to be blind and now you can see. Right? So, two blind guys that spend their time on the roadside, people would recognize them and be like, oh yeah, it's the two blind guys. Then one day the two blind guys aren't there. <laughs> like, what happened to the two blind guys? Oh, they're over there. They can see now. Kind of hard to hide that. But they don't listen to Jesus. They go away and they spread his fame through all that district. Jesus tells them, don't go tell anyone. And what do they do? They go tell everybody. And then at the end, end of the, spoiler alert, end of Matthew, Jesus says, Go tell everyone the good news. And we're like, yeah, I'm good. The people that aren't supposed to go brag about Jesus, go and brag about Jesus. And those that are supposed to go brag about Jesus and spread the good news are like, ah, but the World Cup's on. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> Why is it that, that these people who have been told not to do something go out and disobey God and those of us who have been told to go out and proclaim the good news of what God has done in our lives? Nah. And I know the response often is, well, yeah, if I was healed from blindness, I would go tell. And why is it that we, we compare, we not only compare our suffering, but we also compare our triumph? And, and I'm talking to my dad. He slipped and fell, you know, broke his leg, no big deal, 17 screws, all this. 
And he's in the hospital, and he's waiting to have surgery, and he's like, yeah, it could be worse. <laughs> yeah, a lot, a lot of people have it a lot worse. Yeah, and a lot of people have it a lot better. <laughs> but you don't ever say that. Why can't we just acknowledge that, that yes, this thing is terrible. Period. At the same time, what God has done in my life is incredible. No matter the magnitude or scope of what he has done, he has brought us back to life. Well, you know, it's not like I had no disclaimers. As we talked about last year when we were going through the book of Ephesians, we were wretched human beings, as Paul describes us, like disgusting, and the blood of Jesus Christ revives us. End of story. <laughs> like, we were dead, now we're alive. That, we can, dis we can go out and tell that, well, but I don't have that great of a story. Mm, we do. We all do. We all do. And this comparative, like, well, but that person, stop! No! You know, the blind guys weren't like, well, it's not like we were dead. <laughs> you know, it's not like we were the girl who was, you know, raised back to life. God's work in an individual's life is incredible, period. And then he casts out this demon and allows this person to have a voice again. I mean, look at the imagery of that. When we are entrapped by the, the evil one, we are voiceless. And when Jesus brings us into his presence, into restored relationship with him, we have a voice. And the Pharisees say, it is by the prince of demons that he is able to cast out these demons. I have to say, on Monday we were uh, meeting with our missionaries that were here this weekend. I cannot mention their names for their own privacy and safety. They were recounting these stories of these miracles. Miraculous healings multiple demon possessions that they're a part of freeing these people from. And I just sat there in awe of like, where were you on Wednesday night? <laughs> we don't think that demons exist for the most part. Except when you live in that context, you're like, how could you not? And at the same time, this man who is laying on the ground, he cannot walk. He's been paralyzed for some particular reason. And they go and they pray for him and they pray over him. And, and, and this person says, I wanted so badly to say, get up and walk, but I was too scared. And then his partner, uh, who is not his 
partner, his uh, companion in the ministry. <laughs> Remember when we could just say that and it meant like they were together on a mission trip together? Uh, his partner in, in this prayer ministry that they were doing got down and he started praying for him uh, and laying his hands on this man. And, and he thought, I should just say, get up and walk. And he said, I was too afraid to say it out loud. And then some, some time goes by, and, and they leave, and they come back to this area. They're like, hey, isn't that the guy? Isn't that the guy? That's the guy. That's the guy. That's the guy that we prayed for. And afterwards, they're like, you know, I almost said get up and walk. And the other individual says, I almost said that, but I was too afraid to say it out loud. Why is it that we're too afraid to, to say these things when they're right here in Scripture? To experience healing and deliverance. And how often is it the case that, that we live in such protection and comfort that we miss out on the magnitude of what God is doing in the world. And the Pharisees, who again are supposed to get it, they cannot even wrap their minds around this, that, that this person could be doing these things. And I know that we, we love to just rail on the Pharisees. And I, I want to challenge us on this just a little bit because I'm challenging myself. And so if I say it out loud, then it helps reinforce in my own brain that I need to be challenged on this. We love to use the Pharisees as punching bags. Oh, they're so stupid. How could they miss it? Blah, blah, blah. How often is it the case in our own lives when we, we hold a particular belief And we hold it so tightly, it's been passed down to us from generation to generation and maybe generation to generation to us. And, it, and we have ingrained it in our minds as a belief. It's like this fixture of belief. And as we form beliefs, we have these, these components that, that lead us to beliefs. One is scripture. One is tradition. One is lived experience. I know we've talked about this before. So when we read Scripture in a particular way, and then our tradition confirms our reading of Scripture and solidifies this belief, and then for so much of our lives, we don't have an experience that, that challenges the, this belief. But then all of a sudden, out of nowhere, we have an experience that challenges this held belief. We often say, I don't believe it. I'm not going to change my long-held belief because these two things are so solid and I'm going to question my lived experience. Which at times is good. That's a solid thing to do. So the Pharisees, they've been living their lives. They've been living under Old Testament scripture, they've been living under tradition, now they're having this lived experience that is Jesus Christ, and they cannot come to the understanding that he could be who they're looking for. 
And rather than offering them grace, we offer them ridicule. So I want to encourage us to not be like them and to be willing to have our beliefs shifted slightly and also to be gracious to them. Because remember back when Jesus said, get the plank out of your own eye before you pull the speck out of your brother or sister's eye. So as we continue to move through Matthew, I want us to be gracious to the Pharisees. <laughs> You're like, they're all dead. Well, and I want us to be willing to say, when I'm experiencing this cognitive dissonance, rather than to reject it out of hand, how do I press into it to say, God, what are you wanting me to, to understand in this? Because it's easy to be like, That's, that is from Satan. We literally hear these same phrases. If you think this way, you are from Satan. That's easy. What's harder is to say, what is God trying to teach me in and through my lived experience and my community as we unpack this thing called Scripture together? So, we don't have as many groups as we're norm normally going to have. Uh, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Um, all right, so the first eight men that sit down out there will be a group in, the, in that youth area. And if you're the ninth man and the 10th, and so on, you're going to go to the away room, which is down by the offices, okay? And then ladies, how about we just have seven ladies back there, and we'll have seven ladies up here. So if you're the eighth lady in either group, you're going to have to go to the other side of the room, Okay? <laughs> 